very much, Karen. Um, do we need microphones here or are we? We're okay now, I think we're fine. Thank you. Um, good morning, everybody. Welcome. And thanks very much to um, Karen and the Business Council for Africa. And thanks also to uh, the good officers of Slaughter and May for hosting us today. Um, my name is Andrew Sekandi. Um, I am by far the person who is least qualified to call themselves an infrastructure expert on this panel here. Um, but I do uh, form part of the team at KPMG, which gathers a lot of the intelligence and does a lot of the due diligence for UK investors going into the continent and across the continent. And so a significant proportion of that work is increasing in the infrastructure sector. Um, $93 billion. Can anybody tell me what that number signifies in the context of African infrastructure? Apart from the pandemic. <laughs> 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 the amount of infrastructure needed uh, in Africa in the next two to three years? It is it's close. It's actually the amount of infrastructure investment needed per year over a 10-year period in order to plug that infamous infrastructure gap that we've been reading about for years and years and years and years. Um, and there's kind of good news and bad news on the good news side. Um, the uh, Brookings Institute reported that financing in the sector tripled uh, between 2004 and, tw and 2012, primarily through um, private participation, development finance, and bilateral assistance from China. And so we've seen a massive influx then of infrastructure investment over the years, but less than half of that $93 billion gap is being funded currently. And we've seen indications that China, which is the biggest single source of infrastructure investment, is beginning to slow down uh, and scale back its infrastructure investment as its own economy slows. And so there's still serious challenges, um, but that also represents potential opportunities for um, investors um, to get involved and try to help to plug that gap if they can navigate some of the risks involved. And I've got an excellent panel here um, to delve into some of the issues around financing infrastructure projects, some of the risks involved, some of the opportunities. I'm hoping that we're gonna get a fair amount of disagreement here on the panel. Uh, and so I'd encourage my, my fellow panelists here to be as controversial as you um, Can I ask you please um, to introduce yourselves and, and give us a sense of what you're working on at the moment around infrastructure space. I'm starting with David. Well, as it suggests, I'm David White. I'm the chair of Emerging Africa Infrastructure Fund. Uh, we are part of the Private Infrastructure Development Group, also known as PIDGE. I think we're also kind of getting known as EAF as well. They're rather horrible acronyms, but <coughs> we do, <coughs> sorry, what we do is uh, lend money to the private sector for infrastructure development, as the name suggests. And the sources of that money are the UK government uh, through DFID and uh, the development aid ministries of Sweden, Switzerland, and the Netherlands. Um, we lend long term. We lend on what we hope are reasonable terms to encourage uh, infrastructure development. We lend where others don't. Part of our role is to encourage others to come in or to make other people's projects um, bankable or viable. Uh, we've been going for about 10 years. We've taken the liberty of actually reducing our stock of our outdated table mats <laughs> by leaving them around on your chairs. Um, so you can have a look and get the basic details. I was feeling quite chirpy until you said 93 billion. We've we're a bit of a drop in the ocean. We've our total lending over the 10 years we've been in business has been 1.6 billion. Uh, currently, our loan book stands at about 800 million dollars. Um, we do have ambitions to try and 
participate in this gap to a far greater extent, but um, we tend to lend in amounts of 20 to $50 million. Um, it's where we're best place. We sometimes do it bilaterally. We sometimes participate in syndicates. Um, but that's what we're for. Senior debt, sometimes subordinate. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm Samah Shinouda. I head the equity infrastructure team at CDC. Uh, CDC is the UK government-owned investment arm focusing on uh, South Asia and Africa. Uh, we have invested in the last three years about $2 billion. About 40% of that is in infrastructure in Africa, uh, so quite significant. Um, on the equity side, we've been focusing on, <coughs> on power generation. We've made a significant investment by acquiring 70% of the largest power platform in Africa, Global Ec Africa. We've also entered into a partnership with the Aga Khan uh, Foundation where we fund alongside them their power plants. Um, we then felt that the bottleneck is generation, but also on both sides of, of power generation, there are bottlenecks. So we're now focusing on transmission and distribution, mainly distribution. Um, we have an, we've done a small investment in, in Cameroon and a small investment in DRC, um, but we're looking aggressively to grow our portfolio in that, in that space. And then on the fuel supply side, we are also uh, focusing on uh, oil and gas midstream infrastructure generally. Um, we also focus on transport, so we've done a small investment in rail and ports in South Africa, but this is an area where we would be keen to, uh, to do much more. Um, Again, our one of the, the, the two key differences between us and any, let's say, private equity infrastructure funds is that we are a very long-term term investor. We're a balance sheet investor. So we're not under pressure to exit. We would want to exit at a certain point, but we're much more long-term than many players in the market. And the other key thing is that we are happy to take early-stage development risk, where a lot of the private investors would be keen to come in and financial closer later we could take early stage development risk and um, develop projects. Um, we are not developers, but we back developers uh, and we fund them. And again, another key mandate for us is to uh, demonstrate that projects can work and to attract private sector money uh, alongside us or behind us. Sam Hoxter, I am the regional head for, amongst other regions, Sub-Saharan Africa in the International Business Development Team at UK Export Finance. Um, for those who might not be aware, UK Export Finance is a relatively new name for what was and still is legally ECGD. Um, we're part of the UK government. We are the UK's export credit agency. Again, my assumption is most people know what an export credit agency, but just in case a few, a few might not, our, our mandate is to help UK exporters win business overseas, and that's by exporting both goods and services. I'm going to touch on that later, but it's worth emphasizing we are not just a capital goods supporter. We provide services, and most of our clients are services providers. Um, we are sector agnostic. We don't provide equity. We are, our model is to guarantee senior debt. And as of two years ago, we can also provide debt ourselves, unlike some ECAs. Um, again, happy to touch on that, but uh, we have a lot of appetite for Africa, in particular appetite for some of the larger economies. In terms of what we've done to date in Africa, they include a hospital project, 
uh, an airport project um, supporting offshore oil companies, and we have quite a few um, prospects in the pipeline, which we hope in the next six months or so would be good good announcements to do. Hi, my name is Alex Caton. Um, I'm kind of related, I think, to most of the other people on, on the panel. Um, so Infraco Africa um, is another of the pitch facilities, uh, as David was describing, EIF. They're kind of like our, our big brother. They provide debt into projects. And Infraco Africa's niche, if you like, is providing the first 5% of a project's costs, which in terms of timeline can be a lot more than 5% of the timeline that those who kind of develop early stage infrastructure projects in Africa will know. Um, so our mandate, a bit like David's, we're maybe even a bit more focused on, on the poorest sub-Saharan African infrastructure uh, countries, sorry, infrastructure in the, in the poorest sub-Saharan uh, Africa countries. Um, and uh, I describe it as providing risk capital and development expertise. So we have two teams um, of what we call contracted developers um, who we will put to work on projects where that project itself doesn't have, um, if you like, experience in closing transactions, in negotiating PPAs, or, or doing surveys for, uh, for commuter rail projects, as we had in, in one case in, in Nairobi. Um, so so we, we provide the expertise um, if the project doesn't have it uh, through our developer teams, and then we provide up to 5% of risk capital. So that's on average about $5 million per project. And it's the kind of first money in. So if you find a, say, a wind site or windy site somewhere, you get some rights as a local, the local party or as a local developer. You could come to us and say, this is very windy. Can you fund us for some wind masts and start measuring wind? So very early on in the phase, and then if it's windy enough after a couple of years, then we'll start PPA negotiations in the project in, in the country with, with the off-taker or going through the feed-in process, whatever the regulatory framework is. So we're very early stage. We tend to be first of a kind. So very pleased we did some research this week on IPPs in Africa in-house for our, our kind of annual five-year strategy and we saw I think there are only two operating uh, wind plants in sub-Saharan Africa, I IPPs, and, and one of the first one, Caviolica, in Cape Verde was one of the ones we developed, a 25-megawatt plant. As an example, we, we brought that to financial close. We actually stayed in that after financial close, good operating for two or three years, and then we sell our interest, reinvest the money. So we bring the private sector in as soon as we can. In Cape Verde's case, it was quite hard to bring the private sector in earlier. So um, in other examples, in Zambia, we've developed a hydro project for about two years and then sold it two or three years before the PPA negotiations were even complete because another developer came in. So we, we exited that project much, much earlier. So we're kind of, we, use, we have to justify being in a project. We're funded by UK and European governments, uh, as David is, um, through the pitch. And, and our primary mandate is we're kind of like a... A project preparation facility is something I hate as a description, but it, it does describe what we do. We get projects ready for sale to make them attractive and bankable to private sector equity investors and to lenders. And they don't even have to be private sector. So equity funds that have public finance is fine. We'll also sell to them. And we've completed, I think, um, nine projects uh, where we've taken them through the financial close. I've got a couple of brochures here on our website, give some <coughs> details. But just to give a, a quick example, a quick range, one of them is a containerized PV rental solution in Tanzania, so a company that sells or rents 0.1 of a megawatt of solar power, deploys on site, it takes five days to deploy from arriving in port. So this is, this is the small end, we invested $5 million into this off-grid containerized rental PV business. It's got, I think now about eight projects, eight uh, containers up and running, and we funded them up to 30. 
so a five million dollar investment. And the other end of the scale, Send Power in Ghana, is, is an IPP, some of you might have heard of. It's 350 megawatt combined cycle. It was roughly a billion dollars of project cost. And we worked on that for 10 years. So we funded the developers of that project to get it to financial <coughs> close. And that was Electra who developed that on our behalf. And then they partnered up with others along the way. And finally brought in Sumitomo, a big Japanese investor, as the strategic owner operator. So our job was really done there. We brought in Japanese, their first IPP investment in Sub-Saharan Africa. It's another example of where we made something attractive, taking something up front risk, and that was, that was our biggest investment, around about 15 or 16 million dollars invested in development costs, out of the total development costs in that project, which were over 30 million dollars. So that's, that's the kind of role we can take, and, um, and then we try and bring in others um, when we get them back. Thanks, Ali. Um, great. So now we're going to delve into the Q&A section. Um, can I just ask if everybody could make sure that their phones are either turned off or on silent or not on vibrate um, before we go ahead? Uh, really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, Samir, Alex has just explained that there seems to be this wall of money that is ready and, and, and really excited to get involved um, in the sort of African infrastructure space, and yet there still seems to be this gap between what we need and where we are. What are some of the, the challenges that you find in getting some of these deals financed? Well, let me qualify where the wall of money is. The wall of money is <laughs> is at either financial close or at COD. The wall of money will not look at early stage development projects. And this is where the gap is. And, and if you look at the obstacles, I, I like to think of it as three, three buckets. One is the macroeconomy, two is the sector, and three is, uh, is, is the project. So when you, when you look at the obstacles at the macroeconomy level, Political stability of a country is one. Currency, we've seen Zambia, what's happening in the currency in Zambia, in Nigeria, um, more recently. So these are things that any investor would really look at. Um, even though in Cote d'Ivoire with Azito, we were paid, even during the political challenges they had a few years ago, we were paid every month. So infrastructure is a resilient sector to um, to political instability in some cases, and some others not, especially uh, if the project is still being developed. Um, on the sector side, if you look at power, building a power generation plant is a great thing, but if the grid is not there to take the power, then there's no point. So this is a, a very big issue where transmission, distribution, <coughs> and power generation have to be looked. The whole chain has to work. And it's not the physical infrastructure that has to work. I think, in my view, you always have to follow the cash. Is the tariff right? Will the distribution company collect the money? And will the transmission company have the <coughs> infrastructure to do that? And then the end of the chain is, is, or the beginning of the chain is, is generation. So you have to look at the sector also and where does it work and where there are bottlenecks. Uh, we have looked at a generation, power generation plant that is 95% complete uh, in, in Africa. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to mention the, the, the country, but the transmission line was not there. And even though the PPA is there, the power generation is almost there, you know, you can't sell the power. You won't be able to sell the power. Um, 
So that's on the sector side. Obviously, on the on the on the actual project side, there are uh, there's a long list of of issues, uh, land issues, uh, environment and social issues. Will you be able to get the financing? Um, one important part is that governments, in many cases, get on average one or two people every week that would go to the Minister of Energy and tell him or her, I'm going to build you a power plant. So how do you stand out as the you know, one voice out of the thousand voices that go to these, to these governments and tell them, we have built eight power plants before in five countries, for example, as in the case of Globalec. We will build you the ninth, and we have the credibility. So governments tend to get a lot of inbounds they need to, one of the key things that they need, in my view, is to get advice, legal advice on PPAs, for example, but also strategic advice on who are credible people um, to talk to. Um, obviously, other challenges specific to projects are um, local developers, uh, source of fuel, uh, wind, for example, solar, and a lot, of, a lot of preparation work needs to be done. Um, and there are many, many more, but and that's why there are not a lot of projects. There are, I think, ten IPPs that have reached financial close in the last ten years, yeah. which is very, very little. David, I saw you furiously nodding your head, and I think possibly disagreeing at some point. Well, uh, <laughs> 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 well we could go either way. Uh, no, I, I did a lot of what Sam has just said is uh, is very familiar to us. But I was also just trying to think of rather than just dwelling on absolute negatives of you know, what, where, where have some of those challenges been overcome. But I think it's also important, this wall of money idea, I think it's just headlines and various stuff. There isn't one. And I think the fundamental reason there isn't is because uh, Africa is currently, in most parts of their economies, rather poor. And so investors, are, they just can't sustain high returns. And it's a very risky continent, so I suppose you could argue correctly, capital is priced accordingly. So most private equity funds are going around saying we've got to have a 30% IRR, we need four times our money, we need in and out, and so on. So actually, structure, I just find, when you look at the economics of Africa, I just find it rather difficult to see how the objectives of particularly the private equity firms and those of the actual realities of the marketplace can match. Um, Hence, actually, I think all of our funds, I don't know about yours, but you know, we are there to, for lower returns, particularly the debt portions of what we do, try this an attempt, uh, first of all, to reduce the cost of financing across the board of the projects, but it's also to try and help equity funds get that uh, up a bit more upside into, into their equity by using us as a, a lower part of debt. I, the other huge structural constraint I find in the power sector is actually it's the prevalence of diesel generators. And it's such an intrinsic embedded part of the patronage system and the importation of diesel that actually in quite a few places you're not getting a whole wall of support from governments to, uh, to build your big power stations. They all know the issues, they all know the problem, it's all there on paper and the solutions are all there. But actually one of the things you're battling against is um, vested interest who don't actually really <coughs> want that power done. So, but I hope all of that's changing and, and moving on. That sounds like a reference to a particular West African 
nation. Several. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, one has to, I think, raise realities at times. So there. Um, but just on the more positive side, and the, we had a one. Were you all involved in Lake Kivu? Who was it, Alex? Were you in Lake Kivu? That no. wonderful methane one that's just so uplifting. This and it was tough to get done. But the Rwandans had actually built. This was a project to extract methane gas from Lake Kivu. It's been just pretty well flagged and is now actually pumping out the methane and the electricity generating. But the Rwandans had the power station built and the transmission lines about five years before the gas was extracted. So that sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> yeah, but I generally agree with your point. Sorry, that's a okay. from me. Thanks. Um, Alex, um, without dwelling on, on the negatives and the difficulties, what are some of the, the kind of practical ways um, that we can look to address some of these challenges? As, as from the investor side. Yeah, I mean, I suppose maybe I'm of the panel, the only rep on which offers senior debt perspective only, and I, I know my colleagues have senior debt experience. But we, although we might look rather op opaque as a sort of a government agency, and what you know, what do we think? I mean, essentially, we'll look at a project like a, a banker would look at a project. Um, we're not. Um, we don't provide development finance. We don't provide um, grants. We don't provide concessional soft loans. We only provide loans at a commercial rate, and, and we need to see those loans repaid. Um, how we would look to see those loans repaid will depend on uh, our assessment of, of, of the corporate or, or the project that we're supporting. But essentially, just I mean, we, we would look at it like like a bank. So, to the extent there's no um, large private sponsor involved, and, and there rarely is in, in Africa, unless it's an oil and gas project, or we know in the, in the very North Africa there's some large power developers who are prepared to put their balance sheet on the line. We need to see a government uh, involved, and the government needs to understand that we will be looking um, for support from that government. And you know, I'll put support in inverted commas. We can have a discussion what that support means. But um, although the buck stops at an ECA because the banks are looking at us to guarantee their loans, we in turn will need someone else to, to backstop us. Uh, we're prepared to take the risk that in some circles that might not happen. So I mean, to answer the question, we'd look to see you know, a well-structured project, um, good sponsors who know what they're doing. Um, I, I suppose for the revenue-generating aspect, unless it's a power on oil and gas or a mining project, you know, if, it, if it's a standard infrastructure project requested by the government, again, we'll need to see the government prepared to, to support the debt required for that. Um, PPAs, bankable PPAs. Um, Good, good track record of sponsors, and, and as I say, as I say, balance sheet. It's nothing. It's not an ECA would not look at anything differently from a bank, but we would be prepared because that's what we do. We fill the holes that other banks won't. Um, we're prepared to take to take more of a risk. Thanks, Alex. From your perspective, um, um, way, ways of ways of overcoming some of the challenges highlighted by Samir and David. So for me, another way to ask the question, and I get asked it every year um, by, by our funders, is, is why, why don't you do more? So, so last year, we, we started five new deals, but relative terms, so we signed five new agreements to start developing five new renewable energy projects in five different countries in Africa. So we're, like, we're really whooping about that, because we've done two in the previous four years. Yeah. Yeah. So, so why can't we do five every year? And they're asking, they actually asked me last week when I went to chat with them, so why can't you do 20 a year? And, 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 and I said, well, give us the money, we can hire the people, but I'm not sure it's going to multiply up the number of deals we do because the constraints, really the bottleneck for us is normally around every deal we have to do has to be, I should have said at the beginning, has to be a negotiated deal. So it's, we can't compete in tenders because that would be 
unfair on the private sector or the other tenders because we're government funded. So we're negotiated deals without a, a kind of a prescribed timeline. And normally when we start the project without government side legal and mentioned <coughs> legal, technical and financial advice um, on the government side is key. So the main constraint for us is government side resourcing. So, so how do we address that and what are we doing about it? So I'm saying to my shareholder, get grant funding in there and, and fund the legal advisor in one case we've just, we've just after six months managed to do it in Chad where we're negotiating a, a PPA for a, a solar PV project and we've now appointed finally and funded jointly with the Chadian government their legal counsel so suddenly that legal constraint that they didn't have someone who's negotiated a PPA before is has been addressed but it's kind of one example you know that's in one of my five deals from last year our five deals we, we managed to get legal advice on the government side but they need technical normally as well, um, and, they, and, and, and commercial. If it's a first of a kind IPP, you know that, that expertise and won't be on, on the government side. So that's a key constraint for us. And I think obliquely, but I'd be happy to talk about it more openly, is corruption and vested interests. You know, or, so it's not just about people asking for a bribe. It's, I think it was a very good example. It's people having other businesses that might be directly conflicting with your new piece of shiny infrastructure. Uh, and, and oil was mentioned. So oil import is, is big business. It's small margins on huge values. So why isn't there gas flowing down the West Africa gas pipeline to all those countries? That deal took 10 years, and God knows how many lawyers' school fees were paid to, do the, to get that pipeline through four countries to Ghana. And there's still not gas, mm. enough gas coming down from, from Nigeria. There's still not enough gas getting to Ghana to run. Even the one power plant we've developed in, in Ghana is not gas-fired. It's running on liquid fuel. It's going to be running on liquid fuel. It will be able to convert to gas when the, when the gas comes. So vested interests, I think, it's been mentioned, are, are a key issue. And in our Nairobi commuter rail, um, there are a lot of people with an interest in you know, taxis and matatus and maybe didn't want to see, you know, I stagger the thought, they didn't want to see Nairobi traffic improved, perhaps. They'd rather see get their money out of the minibus companies that they all own at political level. So the example there, direct competition between a commuter rail pro project we were going to put in and, and government taxis. And those kind of things, it just means delay and delay. So again, the, the second question was goes is, why can't you do it quicker? And, and it, it, it is, um, you know, we're starting to be a little more proactive through one of our other sister pitch facilities, but others do it too. The African Development Bank has a facility that provides legal support uh, funding to governments. TAF is our internal kind of company, uh, other facility that provides grant funding. So those two, I think, are the big issues. It's, it's corruption, vested interests, and government side resourcing that really normally hold us up. If you can get this thing looking nice, then the private sector, I, I kind of slightly disagree with my, my bigger friend, if I may, um, that there isn't enough money around. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of money around. I think the shortage, I don't know, is, is really about projects. I was reading this morning this private equity report was produced in 2015, and it talks about the $12 billion of private equity money that's been invested into Africa um, over the period of their study. $12 billion, it's huge amounts of private equity certainly being raised and put into funds and then how much of that is being invested. Mm. So it's not specific to infrastructure that, but it's, it's, it's a big number in terms of private equity. It's the largest sort of piece of expansion capital. So when people say, so we're going to start another private equity fund, I'm a little bit, well, there's other things that need to be addressed, I think. And, um, and it's great to see CDC, by the way, and Global Ec coming back further into the development chain and taking more early stage risk. In some of these tough countries, because that's that's what's needed, mm -hmm. I think. So, could could you give us could you give us some insight into how you approach and try to structure deals? What's your philosophy around um, shaping them and creating them, and structuring them in a way 
which takes into account some of these risks that you've mentioned? The first thing we do is to have patience. <laughs> in Africa, you do need to have patience, and for infrastructure, you do need to have patience. Um, the way we've, we've done it is that we, as Alex mentioned a bit or alluded to, it is very difficult for a small team sitting in London to develop power plants or infrastructure projects in Africa. You need to have <coughs> presence on the ground, you, have, you need to have a track record, etc. So the way we've said we've set the strategy is to acquire an existing company, which is Global Egg, which has eight power plants, five countries, cash flows coming in, strong balance sheet, strong management team, and then empower this management team through its track record and through the new shareholders to focus on early stage development projects. Um, it is much easier to spend money from the cash flows coming from the operating plants than to go for our, to our investment committee and ask for development money to spend on early stage development projects. Um, and I think the first point of how to structure a project is to look at the find the right local developers and to structure the right um, joint development agreements and progress the deal f further. Um, obviously, DFIs uh, are playing a major role in this sector in, uh, in Africa. Um, so whether the DFIs are part of the equity or the debt, uh, it is a very important part of the, of the structure. Uh, obviously, typical project finance, long-term PPAs, long-term debt, um, insurance is a big one. How do you, you know, backstopping, governments backstopping, <coughs> uh, um, Whoever the utility, whatever whatever utility you're you're, uh, you're um, uh, contracting, so it's it's a typical project finance type project that that you have to work on. But the key thing is to do it right at the beginning. There are a lot of small developers who think they've reached they're very close to financial close, and you go and you talk to them, and you find that they still have to redo quite a lot of what they've done. So getting in early with um, an entity such as Global X that has the experience would save a few few years, actually, in some cases, um, in undoing pro parts of the project and redoing them again. Sam, um, UK Export Finance acts as one of those kind of potential backstops. Can you give me a sense, give us a sense of um, how you assess deals, how you like to structure them, um, what considerations you place priority on, and how you go about kind of pushing them through and executing on them? Yeah, sure. And I apologize. My previous response was a bit negative. It, it, didn't, it didn't mean to be. I mean, we we're just very cautious as an organisation because, of course, we know at the end of the day that we're, we're paying out banks and, in some cases, directly lending. I mean, we we could do both balance sheet and project finance lending. Um, in some jurisdictions, our preference is a balance sheet because I think um, project finance is very hard to get away in quite a few jurisdictions in Africa. If it is a balance sheet lending, there will be an assessment of the, the credit of the particular borrower. Um, you know, nothing, nothing more to say than, than that on, on, the, on the credit check. I mean, we because we are an equator principal organization, we have IFC-like environmental and social impact standards that we need to adhere to. Um, we're, very, we're very strict on that because people are very strict with us on that, so that would require an independent environmental consultant to issue a, a study which our team in-house will look at, work through. And that could take three, three to six months. So we, we always state at the beginning that that's 
always a timeline timeline to bear in mind. Um, but for a project finance deal, again, we'd look at it as, as a bank. If it was a, a an oil project or a refinery, we'd need to see technical reports to check the thing would work, marketing reports to you know, get a view on oil prices and where product is going, insurance reports. I mean, we'll, we will share those consultants with, with the commercial banks. We don't need our own consultants unless there's a particular reason we do. Um, but once we've done the, the credit checks, the environmental checks, the technical checks, um, you know, we're good to go essentially. But it, it's a similar, it's a similar analysis to, to to banks. I mean, in terms of how we can mitigate, I mean, I mentioned I mentioned other governments. I mean, we are starting to encourage you know, um, African Development Bank, Afrexim. There are other organisations that we can work with to risk risk share, and we're trying to encourage. Our, our clients and, and, and buyers to, to start thinking about that. I mean, I'm aware of you know the World Bank, Zambian government of, um, finances have been quite restricted of late, um, but the World Bank has set aside a certain guarantee which will go up to 300 megawatts, I think, in the country. So, if there's a way of us working with World Bank or World Bank taking some of our, our, our sh risk off us, and you know there are ways there are ways of not just solely relying on the particular government to. To, to address those concerns. Yeah. Um, and similarly, we work with other ECAs. The airport deal I mentioned was with the Dutch ECA. Um, we are sharing the, the risk there and, and to reflect the relevant country country content of, of, of that particular project. So there are ways of, there are ways of getting around yeah. some of these um, issues that we come across. Great, um, At this point, it would be a good idea to go to the floor. And I hope that you have some invasive, aggressive